Welcome back to Driving Performance. My name is Tom Shea. I'm your host and the co-founder of Agile Media Group. Today, we are joined by two incredible founders, uh, Andrew Case, Sandra Rocco. Guys, welcome to Driving Performance. Great to be here. Yeah. Amazing. Awesome. So, Sandra is the founder and CEO of the first Asian-inspired sparkling water born to celebrate high-quality Asian flavors that for decades have been masked by added sugars. Sanzo delivers beverages that bridge the gap between beloved flavors that represent Asian culture, which is over 60% of the global population, and the clean modern labels found in mainstream American grocery stores. Each can of Sanzo is made with real fruit and zero added sugar, artificial or natural flavors. A complex yet refreshing antidote to sugary and preservative heavy labels of legacy Asian and American brands. Andrew Case is the co-founder and CEO of Noon Brew, a superfoods tea brand that's the best drink for the afternoon slump. Made with 19 superfoods that increase calm, energy, focus, sleep, and digestion. Made in partnership with Andrew's co-founder and father, Dr. Shen, one of the top herbalists in San Francisco. Since its launch in 2021, they've sold over 150,000 packages of tea and recently launched single-serving sachets. That's a tongue twister. <laughs> um, but uh, so, guys, I start this uh, show asking the same question of everyone because there's going to be a lot of audio-only listeners. How would you describe uh, what's happening right now? I have no idea what's happening right now. <laughs> we were just told to show up at, at the corner of Madison Square Park, and hey, there'd be a truck here. We come inside, and there would be people walking down the street, cyclists <laughs> pedaling down, waving at us. And then apparently, yesterday, fortunately, I wasn't here for it, but there's apparently kids coming up to the uh, to us like a like a fish tank and uh, you know trying to try to distract folks. Yeah. But it's I don't know. From my perspective, it's. 50 degrees out and gorgeous in New York City. Totally. And just happy to happy yeah, to be here. Cool. Yeah, it's a very unique experience just being in the middle of a street right now doing an interview, I would say. <laughs> yes. Like, yeah. Really cool. I My like favorite it. response was the Pope Mobile. I like that. Yeah, that's a pretty good one. <laughs> All right, and, and then Andrew, Sandra, do you guys know each other? Is like there a backstory there? Um, did you guys just meet? So, so we just met in person, but I actually have known about Sanzo for a while before you know we started Noon Brew. We used a lot of different types of DTC brands as inspiration. Yeah. Sanzo is one of them. I appreciate that. Yeah, good, great meeting you this afternoon too. Huge fan of the future of the product. Also, gosh, especially over the, having launched you know what a year year and a half ago. Um, congrats on that success. What was that? One hundred fifty thousand. Um, packets, That's crazy, dude. And then now rolling out single serve sachets. Is that how you pronounce sachets. it? Sachets. Sachets, yeah. No, yeah. That, that's awesome. That's like I'm, the little words, bags. Exactly. Bags, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. Cool, guys. Well, so there's a few different stops. Um, as we are in a truck, there's a few different stops on this route. So I'm going to break it down for you guys, and then we'll dive in. So the first stop is uh, going to be origin story. So all the like inflection moments and formidable moments that have formed you guys and, and where you are today. Um, stop two is going to be some brand-specific questions posed to each of you, like specific to your, your brands and the challenges that your brands might have. Step, stop three is going to be brand intersection questions. So a single question uh, posed to each of you that you might have similar, different, um, opposing responses and, and, and answers to. Stop four is going to be a fun segment we call the hot box, uh, a little tongue-in-cheek game uh, inspired by the hot seat. And then stop five is the literal end where we'll uh, wrap and we'll get you guys out of here. Sound good? Sounds perfect. Great. Cool, so why don't we jump into uh, stop one, which is gonna be origin stories. And Andrew, why don't we start with you? Um, you know, you lived in San Francisco for a while. Um, you know, there's a lot of interesting experiences between Stack Lingo and, and sort of finding your way into what I'd selfishly say is like, or, or personally say is one of the most um, awesome communities in the consumer space. So why don't, why don't we let you take it over? 
Yeah, so I was doing Stack Lingo before I started Noonbrew. Went nowhere. And, and what uh, was Stack Lingo? Stack Lingo is basically taking Honey, which is like the browser extension for mm, B2C, right. and yep. applying it to B2B. But um, now that I'm in the actual like co-founder, CEO type of role, I realize how that wasn't just like that wasn't a good idea because right. it didn't solve a pain point. Um, so I shut that business down, and then I was trying to find like what my next type of idea was because I didn't want to get a job after that. And I used a framework of just what was my problem. And my problem was the afternoon slump. So I loved drinking coffee in the morning. I loved the ritual of it. I would go to the office or I would go to uh, my coffee shop and journal. Right. But the afternoon coffee felt forced and it, it didn't really feel like that same type of experience. It was like, I have to have this to like, get yeah. through the afternoon. And like- Straight up utility. No, yeah, no it was like a utility. Ritual. I would like, it would impact my sleep at night, but there was nothing out there that I could say like, this is exactly what I want to have every single afternoon. And my co-founder, um, Alan, he was also working on a direct consumer business where he was basically taking his family's retail operation putting it online, which was a lot of traditional Chinese medicine that they would import. Um, and he wanted to do something bigger in the TCM realm. So traditional Chinese medicine, he really had a lot of passion for it, grew up in like apothecaries and really wanted to bring that to a wider audience. So. I was like, I have this like problem. I need something for the afternoon slump. He knew how to create these different formulas. Um, so he would send me back and forth these different tea formulas. And we started asking people if they had this problem. Every single person had this problem, but no one had a solution for it. They would just drink water. They couldn't drink coffee as much. So like they would just take naps. And we started giving Must be out, nice. yeah. We started giving out samples <laughs> of the back formula, the <laughs> and people started really enjoying it and liking it. It took us a lot of different um, tries to figure out what the formula really was. But um, over time, we found that oolong tea was a really great tea for mm, it. Yeah. White tea was a great blend to not have to have the, those tannins in the back, so like your mouth doesn't get dry, which is very common with black tea or, or right, green tea. Right, right. And then we had all these different superfoods and traditional Chinese medicine that my co-founder uh, grew up taking. And we created this drink that um, you know had 19 superfoods, launched it in September 2021, and it, uh, it just like exploded it you know we sold out immediately um last year we did really really well and then yeah. we launched our nighttime tea which is moon brew which helps you sleep better so a right. lot of people have trouble sleeping at night there's you know no one really wants to take melatonin they're not like excited to take yeah, melatonin yeah, it's yeah. like i have to take melatonin or they take sleeping pills and um we launched this really really good night or nighttime blend with 14 different superfoods magnesium traditional chinese medicine and every single day we get testimonials where people are like, I have not been able to sleep in, in like decades. And like, this is the only thing that helps me like not only go to sleep, but stay asleep, which is, you know, it's great. Yeah, it's awesome. We're definitely going to dive into um, sort of that go to market strategy. But Sandra, why don't we uh, say about your story? Yeah, sure. First off, thanks for having us of in this. Of course. This is easily the most unique and interesting <laughs> interview environment I've ever been in. So thank you. This yeah, is of course. already a, a, a highlight on the journey. Um, yeah, so uh, I, I started my, my brand about three and a half years ago uh, here in New York City. And uh, you know, as we talked about in the introduction, um, you know, we're the first Asian-inspired sparkling water made with real fruit plus no added sugar. Um, the way I kind of described my own journey into this space was it was a very personal, familial, and cultural um, journey for me. Sanzo, in many ways, is the manifestation of 
I guess, like, yeah, a journey that I'd been on for several years. And, uh, you know, specifically, uh, you know, I grew up in central New Jersey. I was born in Queens, but raised in central New Jersey. Uh, my parents are both Filipino, immigrated, immigrated here with my, with my two older brothers. Um, then I was born here. Uh, and I think the, like, the biggest thing for me growing up was, um, yeah, the, I, I don't know that I really had any bit of appreciation or, yeah, I wouldn't say I didn't acknowledge, but definitely certainly didn't have a crazy appreciation for my Asian American, Filipino American heritage. Sure. Um, and interestingly, I guess, when I moved up to New York, started getting a, a bit more, you know, into the just like, you know, going out, bars, restaurants and the like. And then particularly around the year 2017, 2018 timeframe, um, you know, long and short of it for me, it was just like, Asian stuff got interesting, or Asian cultures, Asian storytellers, Asian faces, Asian Globalization, voices. Globalization, I mean. It did, yeah, and it was just something that I f was wondering, hmm, is there actually something here that I could lend my voice to? Right. And uh, the thing that I kept going to, you know, if you actually look at um, old photos of me, um, I actually don't weigh that much more now than I did <laughs> when I was 12 years old. Um, I was already a pretty, uh, you know, robust and rotund uh, <laughs> eater. So like, I just grew up loving, like really I, lo I loved eating. Right. And you know, the food very much is my, uh, is my love language. Yeah. And so, um, but at the same time, you know, I, I, you know, to that point, you know, I started eating a lot healthier, or at least understanding more about how to read a label. And one of the big things for me was, hey, in you know, Asian, you know, Asian grocery stores, or if you shop down the, you know, the quote unquote ethnic aisle right. at your local grocery store, you know, a lot of the foods there were either just like not great representations of what I had grown up with, or perhaps to me even worse, were things that I couldn't feel, I, I, I didn't feel comfortable consuming because right. too much sugar, too much sodium, too much just crap in it that totally. I just felt like I couldn't consume or, you know, I just got married last year. Um, you know, so when I thought, you know, I think about like my family, next generation, yeah. next generation and how to, pro and how to keep these flavors, um, and cultures, you know, living. Um, and so that in many ways serves as the inspiration for, for the beginning of Sanzo. Yeah. And Anouk uh, was on earlier with uh, Belgian boys and I thought she had something really insightful of like, you know, a hint of nostalgia and like culture, like obviously she's from Belgium and brought all these things, but also like we grew up on Eggos and Pop-Tarts and like how do you position the brand um, to be something that like, okay, I'm comfortable having my kids consume this and it's not, you know, there's, there's authenticity, there's cultural representation, it's like sort of reclaiming all of those things to, to position for the new era. But Andrew, qu question for you, like, did you like go straight into entrepreneurship? Were you like t always tinkering on something or did you ever have some of that like corporate uh, experience? Yeah, so out of, college I moved to San Francisco and okay. I worked at a company called Zenefits. Okay. So worked there for a few years, saw the company go from like 50 employees to over 2,000 within a year and that was insane to see that level of growth and they raised like 600 million dollars within a year and a half so that was like a startup on steroids. Right. And I was like alright I'm done with that. How'd you even, <laughs> how'd you even land there? Um, just through a recruiter. It was like yeah. serendipity. It was, yeah, very tough to get in. I was one of their first uh, sales development reps, so SDRs, helped build out the outbound program and then wanted to become like an actual sales executive. But yeah, I just, um, I moved to San Francisco on a whim, did not have any savings whatsoever and just moved there with a few thousand dollars and I was just like, I'm going to find a job. Yeah. yeah. Well, Zen the Zenefit's legacy lives on through Rippling. Yeah. Yeah, they're, yeah, they're <laughs> doing right. really well. Yeah. yeah. And Sandra, what were you... Um, how did you end up in entrepreneurship? Like, what were the pre-Sanzo pre moments that might have formed you? 
Yeah, um, my my journey was also kind of circuitous. Um, my first three years out of college, I worked as a nuclear engineer at a nuclear power plant. Really, not much to do with the world of beverages. Um, yeah, maybe the furthest thing. Maybe the furthest <laughs> thing, and even geographically, out in the cornfields. Right, uh, right, right. You know, For good reason, you don't put nuclear power plants next to New York City. Right. Yeah. Um, but so that was you know great learning experience, but also very much filtered out what I did not want in a, in a job environment. Um, and then did two years of investment banking after that. Uh, and then for the five years before starting Sanzo, I uh, was working as um, head of, I became a head of growth, but then, and then chief of staff at a, at, at like a, an apparel subscription box company back in the 2010s when. Which, which one was it? It was called Bombfell. Okay. Uh, it was yeah. in, in the vein of like I, a I, trunk yeah, club, yeah, Stitch yeah, Fix. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You probably got um, from me, I yeah. guess, would have been a Facebook or Instagram ad. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that sounds um, right. Back when you know Facebook lookalike audiences were the totally. you know, the, the, the the new craze of of digital marketing, yeah. um, and that was really the seed that planted um, in me the idea of oh, I would actually love to be. I, I literally like literally sat next to our CEO for five years, yeah. and was like, hmm, okay, this is how like this is how it works. Yeah. Um, I had a couple of experiences. In college, and even right after college, that um, you know, I, I definitely piqued my interest into entrepreneurship, and I was dipping my toes. But I just didn't have, I, I, honestly, I didn't feel like I had any of the right frameworks right. about how to launch and scale a business. And so, having those five years at Bombfell were huge in just even understanding what it takes to start and grow, um, just generally a physical goods business. Yeah, for sure. All right, so um, we're going to get into stop two. There's going to be some brand-specific questions here. And so, Andrew, I'll start with you. Um, you know, you've had a lot of success, so it's, it's going to be a go-to-market question uh, because I think, you know, your post-iOS 14.5, Nick was just on, we were, you know, talking about, is D2C dead? And yet you've supercharged the growth through a lot of those formats. So I'd love to just hear a little bit of an expansion on how you sort of played that go-to-market. Like, what do you attribute success to and sort of how you positioned? Yeah, so I, I think that, like, with Noon Brew and just in general when you're going to market, like, you have to come with something unique. It has to be something that consumers haven't seen before so, because if they've already seen it before and you're just, like, another matcha brand or if you're just another one of whatever, they're just going to tune you out and your acquisition costs are going to be super high. So, like, we... You know, you can drink Noon Brew in the morning, you can drink Noon Brew in the afternoons, but we were like, we are focusing in on this afternoon segment because there is no one else that was owning that segment. So we're like hyper-focused on this is superfood tea for the afternoon slump. Um, and then what we did, and this was advice that I got from a lot of my friends that are in DTC, is that one channel, um, one product, and $1 million in sales. So until you have that, don't have shiny object syndrome and go to, to Amazon, to Google, to all these different types of routes. Like just focus on Facebook because Facebook can get you to your first million and a lot more. So that's what we did. We were hyper focused on that. And then, you know, just with the product being consumable, um, we just had a lot of repeat purchases. So we had yeah. a lot of repeat purchases. We drove a lot of subscription. We like did a lot of different testing on our website. We kept it very simple for the first six months there's only one page of our website right. that you could only buy <laughs> there's yeah. nothing else like there is no like history about us or anything like that there is only one page of the website so we're very very focused on making that work and making that funnel work and then we um, 
really looked at like what our competitors were doing and took the best elements of that, made it our own, and we saw a lot of success with that. What angles did you lean in on? Like, was it, it was it all around that afternoon slump? Um, were there other things that you had like were learning about your consumer and repositioning? Whether it was creative, whether it was UGC, like, talk more about like the nitty gritty of that strategy. Yeah. The, so you know, we're past like throw it into Facebook, look like an audience, that shit, and just like hope just that it rips. Rip. <laughs> which, yeah. which was like the case for, for a lot of for brands for a, a while. Lot, a while. Yeah. yeah, I mean, it, it was sort of both, you know, it was like very much like looking at what our competitors were doing, looking at like what our reviews were saying as we started to get more reviews, how our customers were talking about our product, and then being able to use that within our ads, um, and then just testing a lot. You yeah. know, testing a lot, seeing if it's a static image, if it's UGC, if it's a long-form video, whatever it might be, um, but being very, very ruthless about testing and then being able to, to scale that up as we were um, you know, seeing good results. Yeah. There's a lot of your creative, like, Internal to the brand, were you working a lot of UGC stuff? Like we, like we talk, edutainment yeah, also. we talk a lot about that internally. Like what we're trying to figure out, like whether the in-house or the UGC stuff, or even just like freelancers. Like how how have you seen success? The best is just UGC that you produce for zero dollars. <laughs> it's like <laughs> yeah. you get your phone Damn, and it's, it's you put it on selfie mode and you talk into the camera as if like someone's an actual human. And that has always performed the best for us. It's always been like more internal type content. Because for me, like I can talk better about the brand than anybody can. You right. know, like I'm, and also like having like that founder's voice as like, hey, like this is why we did this. And like, this is like the journey of the process has always served us the best, but like, UGC, like, it's great to have, like, different types of perspectives for, you know, audiences, but, um, you know, that just doesn't perform the best for us because people see through that, and I think that I can talk about the brand better than, like, you know, some UGC actor that we pay $500 to to make, like, a video. Yeah, sure. So, you mean to tell me that I can integrate my shop with you in less than a minute? You store all my inventory across your 50 plus fulfillment centers in the US, Canada, UK, Europe, and Australia, and then fulfill all of my orders globally with over a 99% order accuracy rate? That's right. We do that for over 7,000 brands today. And you can do that for all my D2C, B2B, and Amazon orders? Yep. And when my next TikTok video goes viral or during the holiday rush, you can grow with me forever? Yes, again. Dang. That's the ship, Bob. Check out ShipBob at ShipBob.com to unlock your fulfillment provider that acts as your personal chief supply chain officer. It's like uh, the worst is like the very overproduced ones. And you're like, this is <clears throat> it's like in a different era. You like, see it in the comments. Social proof, yeah, I yeah. think, is like really what's starting to take off. Yep. Um, uh, so, all right. So, Sandra, I got a question for you. Yep. Uh, and I really liked this when I heard about it. You had some sort of like, when you were building your go-to-market, you had this sort of like mantra or, or these North Star ideas, the 0.3 second rule and the glass window or the glass door rule. And it exists now. Uh, let me, I'll, I'll weigh in with my commentary. <laughs> I'll let you explain what those are first. Yeah, I mean, I had two uh, rules of thumb when, de when, de when developing the packaging because for you know, a single serve, ready to drink beverage, I just knew at scale this was going to have to win on a grocery shelf or in a New York City bodega. Right. Um, but also, but also that a lot of brand awareness would be driven on your phone. And so, the first piece of it, which for me was, I think I'd read somewhere that you have about 0.3 seconds 
um, on your screen when someone sees, let's say, an ad or something, you know, like yeah. a for you type of. When, when I creative. wrote software, it, yeah. we had a team called Race to 100 Milliseconds. Ah, there you go. We, we, I wrote search. So when the page was loading, if it took more than 100 seconds, you would see at that moment people that's like refresh Gone. or yeah. go to the website, yeah. stuff like that. That's actually fascinating. I did not. I don't yeah, think yeah. I. I don't think I knew it's that. The human like, eye has like a right. Yeah, that's awesome. So like even so for me, whether it was the colors of the can, the contrast ratios, even the size of the logo, size of the fruit illustration, that was huge. Um, and then what I all I kind of applied that as well to <laughs> retail because I would walk down the street, uh, specifically up and down Canal Fort. Yeah, you know, basically like the main yeah, yeah, streets yeah. of Canal 14th, 23rd, and whatnot, and look inside stores. And my thinking was. Hey, I should be able to recognize that that's my brand's can from outside the window right. if I look inside a cooler. Like I, I know Red Bull, I can see from like miles away. Right, and if you're not doing that, then you've actually, you're actually wasting money, or you're throwing away money because that's that's an, that's that's an impression um, uh, that you're not making uh, like you know, to, to to the consumer. Yeah. Um, and so you know when we you know when, like even from day one, like that was very much a big part of. The uh, the packaging design like scope of work that I worked on with our with our with, our, with the team that we worked on the the original packaging with. So who'd you, who'd you work with? Um, so I worked with an agency called the Working Assembly. Okay. Um, it's shout Kore out. Co yeah, shout out. It's a uh, yeah, Korean and female owned. Oh, um, awesome. And they're actually their offices are two blocks away from here. Okay. Um, cool. And so uh, we had actually worked together previously when I was at Bombfell. Okay. And we just hit it off, and I just knew, hey, you know, for this kind of a brand. Um, you know, I wanted someone who kind of understood the culture, understood the voice, understood the tone, and yeah, what you see today was the product of. We we haven't gone through many crazy repackage packaging redesigns. Right. I think we kind of got it right the Nailed first it time. In the beginning, yeah. All right, so Andrew, I want, I want to turn back to you, um, and I have a, a lot of admiration and respect for what you said. It was like one channel, a million dollars. Um, what was it again? One product. One product. One, one product yeah. Uh, one channel, a million dollars, and you know, I think. More and more, I, I see all these brands that are, I, I don't want to say chasing this shiny object, but you'll hear someone's like, oh, I'm nationwide and insert retailer here. And the the more I've learned about the space, the more I know that like sometimes that's not always the best outcome and it's not setting them up for success because whether it's your supply chain or your, your, your support for it, um, like the media elements that go into it, um, you know, you don't get a ton of chances. And so my question for you is really around like, how do you think of channel development now that you've accomplished that goal? Do you think it stays digitally native for a while as you continue to learn more, or do you see retail in the future? And how are you thinking about that that next step? Yeah, so we're, we're definitely going retail now that we have single serving sachets. We're okay. going to be making a push for retail, but you're totally right. I think that like it's very shiny object syndrome where you can say like I'm nationwide and X type of retailer, but you have to sell through. And if you don't sell through, it is very costly and they'll ship you back the inventory and you'll be sitting on inventory. Cash conversion cycles are really tough, so you have to have like good capital efficiency. Right. Um, and yeah, it's very tough to sell through. I mean, I'm sure you probably have dealt with it, but it's like, I, I mean, we started as just D2C so that we can like not only build the brand, but also understand like how the brand interacts with people's lives, you know, like, it's a lot faster feedback cycle to get a review after 20 days versus to hear about it a few months later yeah, from a retailer. You can't move as quickly exactly. either to iterate. Exactly. Yeah, so we're going to go retail, but we're also, you know, we're on fair. We're on some of these different smaller channels right, where right, we're right. not, like, going to, like, do a big, like, Whole Foods or something of that sort just yet because 
we're still bootstrapped and um, capital is very, very tough, especially with like everything happening with SVB totally. and Signature and all these different banks collapsing. Um, so we want to be really, really mindful of that. But we're starting to get into retail and we're starting to get into coffee shops a lot more. We're starting to get into some of these smaller amounts so that we can understand how these retailers interact. And also we're probably going to have to redo our packaging to be more retail um, specific and focused. So, you know, all these different types of things, we're kind of like walking before running and DSC is still working in 95% of our sales. Right. Um, so we're going to keep it like that, build our subscriptions and really continue this conversation we have with our customer base. Yeah. Awesome. And, and Sandra, you, you know, you said you, whether it was luck or, you know, a lot of hard work, um, getting the branding right is awesome sort of off the jump and you know something that was awesome kim was on from omsom and she yeah. talked about the move to retail so like you know where andrew is they're digitally native at first and i think what's really challenging is you lose so much of what makes the brand the brand when it has to stand on the shelf by itself yep and um kim said something awesome about how like one small tweak really changed a lot and that was putting a picture of her and her sister yep, on, on the, the packaging package. because it showed a level of authenticity. It showed that this, like it humanized the product for a lot of people and I think brought down a lot of those walls of like, this isn't some like Fortune 500 conglomerate that's trying to be exploitive. Like there are people behind this brand and, and there's true authenticity. So Sandra, my question for you is really, how have you thought about that? And, and you have a retail first and like <laughs> very retail first strategy now. How have you thought of trying to make that bridge that jump from like where Andrew currently is to you know leaning into more retail how do you heard it's like it's like a different operating model to like reinvent the company almost it is yeah when I was hearing Andrew talk the first thing that I thought about was trauma <laughs> <laughs> sure well, was, yeah trauma one and the number two actually would be demand planning right um, it's like even for even for a brand that's turning well and like fortunately we haven't had issues where you know we're getting product returned to us it's a different type of demand planning altogether you know you have a sense yeah, i used to work in the world of of, of d2c bef like before this you know our business th then was about 100 percent direct to consumer um and yes there's a marketing muscle flex that's completely different but there's also an operations and inventory demand planning that's completely different and a sales cycle that's very different because um you know in the retail world a lot of it's based on category reviews and resets and so like you can't just walk into a whole foods they like the product and they put it on shelf oftentimes it may take up to a year before they even say hey i like it and then like from that from that point to getting onto the shelf right um and so at least for us, like I, I look like we talked a little bit about it in the previous question, but to me, the very the brands that I've seen win in retail ultimately keep the packaging pretty simple in the front. It's how can you, um, I, yeah, if it's an adaptation of this, I guess, point three second rule that um, that we've right. talked about, um, but it's also understanding who else might be on your on your set. Um, yeah, on your on your shelf. It's funny. I saw another. I saw a tweet just yesterday. Um, from I won't I, I won't name the retailer and I won't name the brands, right. but I'll just say it was in the beauty space. And what you actually noticed was a lot of the brands on that shelf utilized the same brand design. Mm. And so what you had was actually brands that weren't that differentiated um, because the topo like the topography was very similar. Right. Even the color palettes were very similar. And so um, you do in retail have to design very much for both like your brand, but also how it lives totally. on, the, on, on the shelf. Like I think that's ultimately why I think when we talk to 
um, you know, later stage investors and you know, folks who've been in the space for a while, um, that can be a lot of times the pitfalls between brands going from direct to consumer into retail. But also, if you have a retail tested brand, right. you know, there can be some real longevity um, in that brand because it's hard to get on the shelf. Yeah. But also, if you have the velocities, it can actually be a little bit harder to come off because right. if you're doing well for that retailer and you can nurture that relationship well, it gets in, it get it, it can sometimes actually get closer into the world of almost modeling out like recur, like real recurring revenue right um, you know for certain retail channels yeah well you said about the shelf stuff uh, brought me back to that so my dad for four decades ran like a signs and awnings company it's like you know he'd put up these things explains it's, your path well huh? I tried really hard not to end up there I went to Los Angeles I got as far away from the family business as I could and lo and behold here I am in the same city and in somewhat similar business but something he always taught me and now is like in our creative best practice deck is if you were working on artwork, and I think the same applies for shelf space, you look at it, close your eyes, open them, and look where does your eye go to immediately. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so if it doesn't go to the right spot, and, and that's in the context of like, you know, we're designing a truck side advertisement, is it going to the logo or is it going to the hero shot? If it's going to anything else, if you've created something that's too busy, I think what you said about standing alone on the shelf and the homogenous nature of some of those categories is really interesting. And, and so I guess. Now that I guess you are deeper into the retail game and Andrew is, is like at the nascent level thinking about it, what is a role you wish you hired earlier? Ooh, wow, I like this. Um, so the first role that I ended up hiring for, which I think was good for us, was uh, finance and operations. Yeah, I, I was the sole founder and um, kind of ran, yeah, had to, had to one person team until 2020? Until very late 2020. Yeah, we were that's about, crazy. We were in a little over a million in sales. Um, and it was, it was a lot. Like, it was, you know, we even getting in here before we're talking about like impacts on mental health and whatnot. <laughs> like, this was also happening in the middle of the pandemic. Ugh. So there's like a lot going on there. Um, fortunately, hired a. You hit uh, it well. I remember being like, oh, sounds like be those people are everywhere, like DMing you, like, we should work together. And then yeah. you're like, it's literally just me. Yeah. <laughs> and then, it, well, yeah, got an intern to start answering the DMs at least, which is good. <laughs> there you go. Um, I think I would have, I mean, even now, like, yeah, we're still really learning how to scale up sales, um, retail sales. Like, it, it, it's been a core competency that we've developed really well. Um, but even now, as we're starting to get even further along, now it's, okay, how do we look? not just six months, but actually now at our size, it's, you got to look about 12, 18, and 24 months out. Right. Um, just because the sales cycles can get even longer as you go further up the ladder in, um, in retailers. Um, and that actually ends up informing a lot of the decisions you might make today. And it, it's, a, it's, I think, an, uh, an appreciation and a perspective that I'm glad to have now because it does induce, <laughs> for better or worse, a certain level of paranoia, or you put, or you said trauma. Like, right. yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah. Um, but having that level of, like, uh, senior retail-minded expertise, um, for sure. You know, it it might have helped before, but it's also one of those things too, where it's like you can't you can't build it before folks come. Right, so right, right. you know, we're we're, we're, we're we're going through that process right now of really trying to, um, you know, level up. Uh, across the organization, but particularly how we think about, um, you know, retail sales. Yeah, Jay Carls was on earlier, and um, he had something really great where it's like, you know, instead of hiring a bunch of people, he was like, my strategy has been, like, be the best friends with the merchandisers and the retailers Absolutely. and stuff. Because at the end of the day, like, those people 
you know, if you can get an emotional connection with those people, they become your salespeople. And it's real. It's too hard to scale yourself for, to even honestly, you even scale a team to support it. So activating those people who can, you know, let me go face that up. Those guys, they're good guys. Right. Like this amorphous blob of a company that's like talking heads at a, at a corporate office yep. I don't really care about. And like, this is someone being like, hey, is, does this do well? It's like, even if it doesn't, yeah, like people love it. You know, it's like tr trying to be an advocate for the brand. So I thought that was such an interesting at least unknown for me about like how to, to try to hack the retail and stay sort of like lean and scrappy. Yeah, I think for a lot of folks, it's uh, it's a bit of a surprise, for better or worse, I'll say. There's there can actually be some pros to it, but um, how much more human the business gets once you start going more retail. Um, you know, we're sold as an example in you know Whole Foods, like I'd say every Whole Foods just in New York City. Right. But every Whole Foods is gonna like one Whole Foods down the street is gonna be different from the other one in a different part of town. Um, and you could even just run into someone on either a very good day or on a, on a, on a very bad day. And they happen to be the people who are controlling, um, you know, whose product goes on the shelf or where. Yeah. And so navigating that, um, I think it, it's, it, yeah, it can, be a very, it, it can be a very humbling experience. Yeah, for sure. All right, so um, Andrew, I want to go back to you. So we asked Sandro um, what's a role he would have hired for earlier. I guess my question to you is, what's something you wish you learned earlier now that you're sort of a uh, decent ways into the, the venture? Um, I mean, there's so many things. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think good cash flow management okay. is really, really, really important. Um, so, like, just knowing your numbers, having daily revenue, and checks, and, like, just knowing what your profit is what are you every using, single like, day. Are you using MER as, like, a market expense ratio as a, a North Star? Or? We, I mean, profitability. Yeah. Like how profitable, are, yeah. how profitable are we running each day? We have a, a daily revenue tracker that I fill out each morning, and it's like, this is how much money the business made. Yeah. And like everything is in there. So that, we didn't do that until about, you know, nine months in, 12 months in. Um, cash flow is like super important. I think, like, at least online and still probably in, in retail as well, it's like you have to have like one big idea for your brand and, um, you have to be testing different offers. So like really listening into what your consumer wants is super, super, super important. And I think that we've been a little bit resistant to that um, in some different ways. We've definitely listened to them in, in certain ways, but like there have been some glaring obvious ones where like once we started listening to them, the business what's just an, like- What's an example? Samples. samples. Like people want yep. samples and yeah. that, yep. like, that was something that we just never did because we were like, well, we can't really make it work in terms of like the math online, how can we do samples? Like, but like once we did that, like that was one of the big levers that people were like, oh man, like this, we could make this work. This is how we did make it work. And then all of a sudden that really like was an inflection point within yeah. the business. So I think that like just understanding consumers, like talking with them, like hopping on the phone with consumers, having like different types of flows set up where like you know you can just get people to book on a calendly to talk with you customers um that has been super super helpful and like having that voice of the customer and really understanding that and like being able to position the product as they say it and as they see fit has been really important yeah and another question i have for you is um it's your co-founder's father right That's yeah the, so What's the backstory on, and, and we'll get into SKU development, and like, I know, you, Sandra, you have some really interesting thoughts on how many SKUs, how do you think of like increasing SKUs, stuff like that, but how, how, um, how does like ingredient sourcing work in the context of your business? Like, uh, how do you 
like figure out all these methodologies? How do you find the? You know, we're going to talk about um, the what is it Moon, Moonbrew, right? Yeah, Moonbrew. Yeah, so, but um, just take us into like what's all involved with sourcing those ingredients, like figuring out these combinations, and I think. Really what I'm trying to angle towards is like demystifying that process for people who are trying to launch a product. Yeah, so my, my co-founder does all of that, so I, I do not take any credit for it, but my co-founder, he really creates like the formulas within it, and then he gets his dad, um, who's one of like the top acupuncturists in San Francisco with acupuncture clinics all over the Bay Area, and he's been like doing traditional Chinese medicine for decades. He gets him to look over it and to like make sure that like the proportions are right, or if like there are some different things within traditional Chinese medicine that you don't want to have within your ingredients or your formulas because they're like a hot or like they're a cold. I mean, he can explain it a lot better than I can, but yeah. he basically, my co-founder is really, really good with knowing what what to put within there, knowing the proportions, knowing what different TCM ingredients that like, I mean, our competitors just don't know, know how to like pronounce them, I would, I would imagine, <laughs> yeah. you know, it's like, you'd have to like be in the know, you have to like get into these different TCM books that like, you know, they're all in like Mandarin or you, you have to understand that. So I think that that's one of our competitive advantages where like our formulas are really, really good and uh, like, we have so much experience from my right. co-founder and also his dad for doing that. And like, you have to have some type of edge within that. Like my co-founder's dad has been importing traditional Chinese medicine for decades and he sells them to the different apothecaries within Chinatown in San Francisco. So when you go to Chinatown, you see all those different like ingredients in the back of right. an apothecary, that's my co-founder's dad. So like, we just knew how to source the, the best ingredients and find the extracts within it. And we knew the different suppliers just from you know, them being in business for so long, they source it all over and um, <clears throat> yeah, like we just knew how to work with those suppliers and get the best pricing for it and that was really, really, really important and I think that like it's not easy, you know, right. none of this stuff is easy um, but I think that like you have to have a really good product and for us, I'm sure for you know you as well. You have to make it taste good. Right. Like you cannot make something that has a good effect, but it doesn't taste good. And like a lot of TCM, uh, you know, it doesn't really taste that great. It's just something that you have to like power through to get the yeah. effects of. But like we knew that like if we were going to bring this to a much wider audience, the taste was going to be something that like you had to nail. So we spent a lot of time like formulating on the taste. Over 7,000 customers like Pet Lab, Chamberlain Coffee, Hero Cosmetics, Spikeball, Dossier, TB12, Pit Viper, 100 Thieves. Tens of millions of packages shipped every year. 50 plus fulfillment centers across the US, Canada, UK, Europe, and Australia. An app store with 50 plus integrations like Shopify, Amazon, NetSuite, and many more. Managed inventory distribution, D 2 C and B2B fulfillment capabilities. 99.96% of order shipping on time. 99.95% order accuracy rate. Yep, we're talking about ShipBob again. We know picking a fulfillment partner or 3PL is not easy. And equally importantly, we know you never want to have to move or pick another one. That's why we partnered with ShipBob. From zero to 100 million in sales, ShipBob has you covered. We're getting to stop three here. So we're gonna do some, some brand intersection questions. Cool. And it's, I wanna take like a deep dive into SKUs. And so first, Sandra, I wanna talk about the new flavor, the move to four packs. Um, how six you packs. Six packs, it's all right, I'll edit it into six packs. Cool. <laughs> um, the move into six packs and how you've thought about that. And then um, you've, you've talked on, uh, in 
other spaces about like your strategy with SKUs of like leading with three and all those things. And obviously, you're you're now developing new SKUs. So talk talk to me just about SKU strategy. Yeah, I mean, it kind of goes back to the previous point. You know, we talked about before, which is in order to know what's going on in your trade. The, this isn't rocket science, right? Go into your, they'll go into a bunch of grocery stores, and kind of see what's already gone right. on with other with other brands. Um, you know, when we launched, uh, it was actually kind of clear to me uh, if you looked at the rest of the sparkling water set that the minimum that you needed to have a flavored sparkling water line was three. Uh, some people will do more than that. My take was, I'd rather start with the minimum because, I mean, similar to Andrew's point, um, you know, staying focused. Uh, building up your initial brand block, and then also just keeping your operations as simplified as possible is just really helpful. Um, it's just very, it's very difficult to unwind uh, a, a certain decision when you just have so many more variables out there. Um, and then another thing that I learned early on, this is actually, I will say, from someone who's got a bit more experience in beverage, is that each new SKU, if you're a retail-minded brand, can actually be like a card you play to certain retailers. Um, the further up you go, certain retailers may want a certain um, ex you know, exclusive. Um, as case in point, right now, for folks who are, uh, you know, who, who are interested in our brand, um, we have a new pomelo grapefruit flavor um, that's being sold at every Whole Foods in the country. Um, that's actually exclusive to Whole Foods, Foods. I didn't know that. for about 60 days, uh, so from March through the end of May, and then that will roll out to the rest of the market. For brands that go, come out of the gate with seven, eight, nine, ten SKUs, you don't actually get to have that conversation. You know, we talked about the importance of a, of, a, of the relationship with the retailer. We get to have that relationship with the retailer because all four of our previous SKUs had already been turning very well. Right. That's now a card for us to say, hey, we'll give you this exclusive flavor for a few months. Let us do certain things from a merchandising perspective to, and, mar and marketing perspective to help get it out there. Right. Um, but you know, to me, the core principle is, you know, we, we, Andrew's point, I think, is, is certainly scalable. Whether it's, you know, one SKU, you know, uh, you know one channel, one million dollars. We talked about Red Bull. I mean, for the longest time, they just yeah, had their hero can. Right. They didn't even do any, you know, packaging innovation. Um, for I think at least a hundred million dollars in, in in net sales, and so yeah, the biggest thing for me, this gets all you know, and I think Andrew talked about it really well about how it's just so important to have a conversation with the the customer in a similar way today, right? Whether it's on TikTok, um, you know, YouTube or YouTube Shorts, whatever the case may be, folks' attention spans are just so much shorter these days, right. and so it, just establishing who your brand is and like just realizing it's going to be longer than it's going to take longer than you think and just continuing to say that message over and over and over again um, it takes time for a brand to really get implanted um, you know in, in, into a consumer's mind and just for me it's almost like respecting that space um, and not just continuing to pummel them with innovation right because I think what we've both seen is we have actually deeper stories beyond just the product that mm -hmm. resonate with the consumer and we're figuring out with each channel um, both marketing and, and 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 sales channel, right. like how like, it, it, it takes time to figure that figure out and hone that message in. But when you're doing that, like you can also still, if you have the right product, if you have something that's really creating value, you can still double, triple, quadruple your business. Yeah. Like you don't have to be so impatient. Like the the brand, if it's really resonant, can take off and have exponential growth behind it. And I think when actually I see brands that are over innovating, it's actually a signal to me that oh. 
the line that's currently out there, something's not something's working. Something's wrong. Right, and it's fine. Right. And look, you get it, right? But like, right, that's, but that's one way to learn. But right. ideally, you would have had that in the battlegrounds, like right. during the nascent era. You know. Yep. I mean, look at Athletic Greens. They have one product. Eight, one product. One product. Yep. Yeah. It's literally one product, and they have hundreds of millions of dollars in sales. Yeah. You do yeah. not need a lot of products at all. You just need to really like understand how to get that product in the hands of consumers. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and so the next question I really have is sort of like partnerships, but also community. And so um, you guys talk a lot about it. Uh, you talk about you know people that resonate with the brand, um, all of the testimonials that you get. Um, and Sandra, you, you, you've attracted such cool partnerships with the Disney collaborations, things like that. So I want to talk just about the intersection of community and it's important to the brand. I've, I've said this a lot, but like, I, I've always felt that sustainable businesses have a community because marketing's so volatile. It has been, it always will then, and I have, I have a marketing company, but like <laughs> it's, it's a fact to me. And community's always served as that hedge as the wind's blowing different ways to protect you, to, to at least buy time to figure out which way the wind's blowing. So how have you guys thought about community, its importance, developing it, whether it be through partnerships, whether it be through activating them in the context of building your businesses? And you wanna go first? Sure, yeah. I mean, I think the community is super important. We just always want to be in conversation with our customers because we learn so much. And, like, we learn just, like, how they're using Noon Brew or Moon Brew, like, what recipes they're using to, like, put it within their daily lives. We, um, we're about to launch a Facebook group, which, like, I'm super stoked for because, like... Yo, you got to talk about Ron from Avi was yeah. on here. Dude. Yeah, no, Rips like we saw free. that. Yeah, no, it's great. Like that's what I mean. We just want to have like a good communication line with them, and that provides one more communication line because email is so like inundated right now with sales and promotions and everything. So like having that is really really important. So that's something. I mean, I still send out emails directly to customers with my own personal email address. It's like, awesome. hey, like respond back to me. And, um, you know, we had one yesterday that was like, I love your tea so much. Like my husband does not like tea at all, but like he drinks your tea every single day and it's got him off of Xanax, which is like, I, you know, started yeah, before huge. starting Noonbro, like I didn't know that like Never this was going to happen. That, I just right? wanted a tea for the afternoon slump that like I thought would be like a really cool thing to share. And like the testimonial is like, oh my God. And that, that also like provides you that like impetus to keep on going forward and like to really expand because you want to continually like make a difference within people's lives where it's not like just like the money aspect or the revenue numbers going up it's like wow like the more that we like sell the more impact that we have and you know to Sandra's point it's like the market is so big the market is so so big that you can have one product you can have one SKU and you could do really really well by it um, and I think it's really just like focus, like having that focus on community, having that focus on like, you know, your customers is really going to make the difference. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, for me, there's a, I think there, there's several things I'd want to attack there. I mean, first of which is like just starting the brand of Sanzo was very much for the purpose of serving what was to me a very underserved community. And right. the first of which was, and there's the obvious one, which is you know, the Asian American consumer that, um, you know, I won't go through all the stats, but just over-indexes on a lot of important, uh, you know, purchasing power and just like re right. representation, um, you know, KPIs. Yeah, TAM. But, I mean, sure, TAM. ultimately yeah. TAM, but don't have any brands that have represented us. Right. And so, just having, uh, at least for me, again, because it, it, it was just me in the beginning, like, or, or, like, you know, just a real, authentic and you know, when I could, like, physical presence with our community. 
um, in the beginning days was just so so big, you know, big for me, big, you know, big, big for the brand, um, so that folks could see themselves represented in the brand. But what we also learned pretty early on was that the other bigger community was just folks who enjoyed you know, delicious sparkling waters right. and particularly were into Asian flavors and were eating Asian cuisine, were exploring Asian culture either through TV, film, or music. And in many ways, that's informed a lot of our, our partnership strategy. Yeah. And uh, talk about those partnerships. There's some pretty cool ones there. Yeah, I mean, to, uh, like, I guess like, if, I, if I just start at the top here, it's... I, you know, we talked about this earlier on where uh, even as a child, I was very much into food and beverage. Um, I liked eating and drinking a lot of different things. But overall, I'll just be candid, like the the overall interest in food and beverage, it actually is relatively niche. Um, But what folks are spending... saying it's just me and Nate? I know, right? (laughs) (laughs) But what folks are spending a lot of their time on specifically is their devices streaming, you know, know, obviously now it's a lot of TikTok, but, you know, Netflix, Spotify, YouTube, um, you know, they're watching TV shows, films, and... Uh, and, and that even served as a lot of the inspiration for me. I mean, we go back to 2018, Crazy Rich Asians um, right. was the number one film at the box office. Um, the Korean pop group BTS was selling out football stadiums, oh. like not even just like small, yeah, tiny Pink, arenas. Blackpink now, exactly. And a lot. Of, so for me, a lot of the the initial brand development or why we pursued a lot of these partnerships was, you know. Folks, again, can, can discover us in many different ways, but I felt like it was easiest if we could align ourselves with folks that were already, um, you know, in their daily behavior. Right. And so if we could just partner up and be aligned with these massive cultural tentpole moments, well, hey, here's a great opportunity for us to invest in the community, engage with the community, and then sure, maybe hand them a nice, delicious, refreshing beverage. <laughs> um, and I'll even say now, a lot of how we've been thinking about uh, partnership strategy and just even brand development is hey it's been amazing having these partnerships and in many ways those have helped tell our story but how do we tell our own story and so we've been actually this year focusing a lot more heavily on our own on our own socials our own content strategy uh, so it's interesting you know you see different brands and different parts of their journey um, I think we might have been a little unique in that um, you know, like our community kind of somewhat naturally came to us but also, we had these partnerships that helped really spring, you know, some of our initial brand awareness and brand affinity. Yeah, absolutely. No, absolutely. I think the the community is consistently, I think, been the most important, impactful thing throughout all these conversations. Um, one thing I definitely wanted to hit on, especially because I'm sure a lot of people listening are are thinking about starting business or maybe have businesses, just um, just capital. And, and there's it's multifaceted, right? It's capital efficiency. There's venture capital. But consumer is a pretty capital-intensive business. It's very hard to forecast out. So I'd love to hear both of you just speak on the challenges, you know, and, and maybe if you have some thoughts, Sandra, on like when it's right to raise capital, like how much do you feel like you need to de-risk and sort of do in, in, in I don't know, like a, a testing ground before you're ready to start making those jumps. And so I'd just love to hear both your thoughts on uh, capital management and fundraising. I mean, first thing for me is it actually you know, I, I talked to a lot of founders about this. It's actually ultimately a personal decision, especially in the earliest days. Some of it is your own personal circumstances, you know, whether you're coming into your business with, for whatever reason, you know, a certain uh, source of capital or sure. not. And then, you know, part of it ends up being like the, the dynamics of the business. So I think first things first there is like for folks who are looking to start their own business and wondering, um, 
that question I feel a lot from very early stage entrepreneurs, and oftentimes it's almost reminding them that like, hey, this is your business. Like, you you actually get to in some ways choose what your path, what yeah. your what, what what your path is going to be. Um, for us in the early for myself in the early days, uh, you know, I put in a good chunk of change of my own capital in to get it started, uh, which again some folks may not have, but I was willing to go basically to. A very to a certain point in my personal savings account right, right, right. before kind of making having to make a decision. And fortunately, at that point, uh, we were at a level where I actually just could not write that next check into the business. Like in order for us to hit the next level of growth, it was just going to need way more like like just way more money than I even had. And fortunately, we had enough traction um, to show to investors. And yeah, I then learned especially if you're in the world of ready-to-drink beverages, the money that I put in to start the business was you know, barely a drop right. into what you really need to scale right. a ready-to-drink biz- uh, beverage business. And so um, I think the last thing I'll just say there is it really depends on the category that you're in. I think, I've, again, folks will ask me about that as well, and it just, it depends on what you're in. You know, I've seen supplements businesses, I've seen folks in powdered format, you know, totally. businesses be able to scale like crazy without a ton of capital yeah. infusion, or in some cases, not any. Yeah. Uh, whereas for beverages, I actually think it's hard to do unless you literally are coming from generational wealth. Totally. And that's just the nature of the business model. But yeah. um, that's just my own yeah. experience. And I also think there's sometimes just like strategic strategic imperatives around like, you know, this we need to move on something really Fast, quickly here. Right. Yeah. And like, you know, build the moat as quick as possible. Stuff right. Like that. Right. Yeah, Andrew, I'd love, I'd love your take on it also. Yeah, so we're 100% bootstrapped right now. That's awesome. Um, and uh, very tough to do. Like we're at a point where like we can't just like put money in and like save the company. It's like you need to be like operating really, really uh, like strategically to be able to continue on within this, especially with like the inventory purchases that we're now having to do to keep up with like some of the different demand. Right. Um, so and you're not getting like P P O. It's not P O orders. Yeah. 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 Like you have to like sell through it. Right. <laughs> you know, it's very tough. So we're exploring different capital infusions. Um, we're hiring a part-time CFO, which like is going to really help with like understanding what the financial layout is. Obviously, raising funding right now is not easy, but we're at a, a decent amount in terms of revenue, where like we can still have really good conversations with investors that are interested. Um, and it's finding those strategic partners where we have some different people that are um, really interesting for us to get capital from that could like take us to that next level and not just like the capital infusion, but like, hey, like we have distribution that we want to plug you into. So those are really important and like very interesting for us. But um, yeah, I mean, bootstrapping, like I don't, I don't know if you can bootstrap a ready-to-drink brand. I think that it's just like very capital-intensive to yeah. get those MOQs. Like our MOQs were not that that high for the audience. Minimum, uh, minimum order quantities, yeah. So minimum order quantities were not that high. Like our margins are are super good with that, and like we were able to sell through it really quickly. Um, and you know we're D 2 C, so like we didn't have to have like a big amount of inventory, and like we did things very very like thrifty to start where like yeah. my co-founder was like the 3PL where he had a warehouse and he was <laughs> shipping out orders for like the first like six months of it and like we didn't hire any agencies it was just me and like I would like ask my agency friends to look at our Facebook account but like we just like really really were um, cost efficient and now it with different overhead with employees with these bigger orders um, 
yeah, I think capital is something that we're going to be exploring very much more so going into Q2. And so, um, you know, the next question I have for you, we, uh, we had Noah from Ruby on the pod recently, and we talked about mentors, and, and you know, he's a solo founder, and, like, this shit, shit, this shit ain't easy. <laughs> and, and Sandra, you talked about you as someone he often turned to when he was building his business for advice. And so I really just wanted to hear from you guys, um, do you have mentors? Do you have mentors? Who were they? And, and for anyone looking for a mentor, how do you go about seeking out those mentors? My mentors in the business, and they've now become formal advisors, yeah. uh, but they started out mostly in a way that was um, just giving me more tactical feedback on, you know, we got our first authorization into Whole Foods in New York City and how to work through that either with distributors, um, you know, at the retail level. Um, they specifically had been... Um, executives at uh, at Vitamin Water, which, you know, for folks who are, are unaware, like sold to Coca-Cola for four point right. one billion dollars way back in the day. Not a not a not, not a small chunk of change there. Yeah, for real. Um, and ultimately the biggest thing for me was finding folks who had specifically done what I was doing. Right. Um, yeah, I, I, we talked about this before too, where it's like I think ready to drink beverage is a very specific category to execute in for a variety of reasons, and some of them we've talked about now. Um, and, and so ultimately, you know, where do they come from? Uh, it came from the network. I mean, in, in the beginning days, and it's funny, you mentioned Noah, we met, I think he just cold Instagram DM'd me, or cold emailed me, the best. saying I have a, you know interesting idea for you know, a brand I'm launching. And I got back to him, because in our community, everyone pays it forward. You know, totally. if you've learned something, uh, the information we want to be democratized. Like I'm happy to quote unquote like compete with you know with with Noah and Ruby or other sparkling water beverages, um, you know on on the shelf. But as far as getting the information, the knowledge to build someone's business, like gosh, like that's that that should be you know that kind of information should be free. And fortunately, I think in the food and beverage industry, we're ultimately quite collaborative. Yeah, it's the coolest industry. I uh, <laughs> to be honest, I also have always felt if. You don't really get here without help, and if you haven't, if you can't, if you don't like have the self awareness to recognize that you had help along the way, um, and you aren't willing to pay that forward, like you know, get out of the industry at this point, or at least this ecosystem. So I'm with you 100%. What about you, Andrew? I have tons and tons of mentors. I think that like just as you mentioned, like you don't get to like certain types of levels without the the support. Um, so. I shared an office with one of my friends who was doing like eight figures in revenue and he would just look at my Facebook ad account and be like, you need to do this, you need to do that. Because he was very direct response marketing. Um, and that's what we built our business off of. And like he, every single step of the journey, like he was amazing. Um, a lot of my friends have agencies. So like as you just start to like get into the business, you just your friends become like founder friends because like everyone knows like different traumas that you go through and like totally. you lean on them. So like when I was doing Stack Lingo, I actually interviewed Matt from Huron, which no was way. so funny. Was wow. Yeah. And then Matt was like the one that called me today and he's like, hey, like I have the interview opportunity for you. Like, can you be here <laughs> in, at five? So like, I think that like as you go on, like Ryan from True Earth, um, which is yeah. a huge direct consumer company in Canada, he's like a really, really close friend. And like I met him in a mastermind. So I think that like, you have to be pursuing something and like for like me to like you know mentor someone right now like I want to see that they're actually they have skin in the game totally. like not yep. that they just have this idea and like you know they're thinking about it it's like 
no, 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 like, you need to, like, put, like, the work in to, like, get to that point of, like, either, like, launching or, like, you know, where you really are showing that you want to do this. And, like, I'm more than happy to help people within that. I think that, like, for the longest time, I wanted mentors, but, like, I wasn't doing the work to, like, really, like, pursue any type of goal. It was just like, oh, I want to get a mentor that could show me the, the route, but, like, that's not how it works. It's, right. like, you need to really put yourself out there and, like, the CPG community is so small, especially here in New York. Like, Kim from Olmsum, like, we go out on the weekends and, like, we hang out all the time. But, like, if I didn't have a direct consumer brand, we probably wouldn't have too much in totally. common. But, like, we know what we're going through. And, like... Found um, therapy. Yeah, like, when she was going through the SVB situation, like, I was texting her and being like, oh, my God. Like, I was, you know, I was... It was really nice to, like, be able to help. And, like, but she was going through it. And, like, when I'm going through it, like, I text her and, like, we hop on calls. So I think that it's really, really good. And, like, the market's so big, like I mentioned. Like, I don't really think that I'm competing against, like, different brands. It's, like, there's enough for everybody. I'd rather just be collaborative and, like, not really guard my secrets because, like, this is so hard to do that, like, good luck if you're going to, like, want to compete. Like, yeah. I, like, applaud you because, <laughs> like, it's, you. yeah, it's very, very tough. So, you know, like, yeah, I, I'm not afraid to, like, give out any, like, secrets or share whatever with totally. different mentees or my mentors. Like, I gave Ryan, like, one of our top ads and, like, he, like, copied it immediately and I just, like, laughed, you know? Yeah, totally. <laughs> but, like, that's how it is. Totally. Yeah, and so my last question for you in this segment is a simple question but not the easiest one to answer. What is your respective hopes for Sanzo and Noon Brew? Uh, is, is sort of where they cement their legacy in, in the context of history? I want Sanzo to be the next global water brand. Um, I look at brands such as San Pellegrino, uh, Perrier, Evian, Topo Chico, um, all of which are either or on their way to becoming, um, you know, truly global brands. And there's revenue numbers behind each of those that are you know, quite quite large. Um, but like the reason for it, like sure, of course we're building a business, but the biggest thing that that would represent to me is it would represent the, the actual like reality of the culture that we're in today, which is a lot more globalized. Um, there's a lot more, uh, at the consumer level, um, an attention to inclusivity and just um, you know, we are wanting a truly global experience. And so oh, wow. we, I think, as a world, deserve a brand um, that represents that from, you know, we talked about it at the, top of the, at the top of the show, but like, you know, the other hemisphere of the world representing greater than 60% of the world's population, um, that voice, those cultures, um, that hasn't been represented yet as an aspirational or desirable brand in a yeah. very large category. And so um, that's it for me, full stop. Yeah, and it's... Uh I don't think there's ever been a better time with this, like, you know, the world's getting so small. You think of not only travel, but technology and how close we've all come together. And, like, yeah, it has its roots in a specific part of the hemisphere. However, um, I fucking love it personally, Thank right? You. And then that's not where I'm from. So um, that's awesome. How about you, Andrew? I mean, I think similar. It's like I want this brand to be really, really big. And it's because of just, like, the impact, you know? So it's like, all the testimonials that we get, it's like if the brand becomes big, then we have a lot of customers that are impacted by this and like a lot of people that can sleep better at night, a lot of people that don't have to like rely on, you know, let's say like Adderall or, or like, you know, caffeinated beverages where they're consuming 300, 400 milligrams of caffeine, it's impacting them, their sleep, and then they wake up and it's like this full cycle. It's like we get these reviews every single day that people are like, wow, this has really changed my life. And it's like, I want to 
you know, have a business that does hundreds of millions of dollars so that like I can like have that impact within it. And I think that also like as you your business grows, you know, you grow as a person. Um, there's this really good quote that I um, I had heard where it's like either my business is growing or I'm growing, right. <laughs> you know, and like <laughs> it's very true. It's like when the business isn't growing, like I'm growing because you need to grow to like be able to get to that next level. And I think that like I just would love to have a company that is really big because like that means that like you have the impact within the world, but also you have you like grow as a person to be able to to meet that demand. We sold six million our first year and did $80 million in sales last year. That's what the COO of Adventure Challenge, a longtime customer of ShipOps, shared with ShipOps the other day. The pace of growth for Adventure Challenge has been insane, but it wasn't all positive. It started with a failed crowdfunding project. Then investors assured them that their business would fail. They raised $0 in outside capital. And it somehow only took a few years to hit $80 million in sales. They started off fulfilling all orders themselves. They'd have U-Hauls packed with thousands of products, making endless trips from their storage unit to the post office. It was not scalable. It was definitely hurting their growth. It definitely wasn't fun. That's when ShipOb started their partnership with Adventure Challenge. By being able to focus on growing the business and product development, sales took off like a rocket ship. While Adventure Challenge initially focused on D2C sales, their popularity started driving other conversations. They started to stock several hundred smaller boutiques across the country, then Francesca's, then Kohl's. And while they're based in California and most of their customers are in the U.S., the word of mouth and viral videos on TikTok and Instagram started driving demand around the world. So then they started filling orders out of Canada, and then the U.K., and now Australia. From a failed Kickstarter and getting $0 in outside investment on day one to over $80 million in revenue, Adventure Challenge has defied the odds and built a global powerhouse brand alongside their partnership with ShipOb, who's there to help you completely unlock your brand's growth. Read the entire story at shipop.com forward slash adventure dash challenge. All right, guys, we're at stop four here. It's a game called the hot box. Nice. <laughs> no longer too hot in this box, I'm being honest. <laughs> um, but so the hot box is a, a, a tongue-in-cheek version of um, the hot seat. So it's going to be rapid fire, this or that questions. Andrew, we'll start with you answering first. Sandra, you'll go second. I like it. And the idea is that the you give the responses without too much thought so you try to go as quickly as possible cool you guys ready for the hot box let's yeah. do it let's all right it. first question cold plunge or hot tub cold plunge i just did a cold plunge today so hot tub okay <laughs> beach house or ski house uh ski house beach house coffee or tea tea obviously coffee but maybe today i'll change <laughs> <laughs> we're tea people now sunrise or sunset um, sunrise. Sunrise. D2C or DTC? D2C. DTC. Okay. Yeah. Neat or messy? Neat. Messy. Corgi or golden retriever? Corgi. Golden <laughs> retriever. We're going to be a couple minutes. Winter <laughs> or summer? Summer. Winter. Really? Ooh. Wow, I'm going to be the only winner. Summer, <laughs> summer, season. summer of course. <laughs> um, tennis or golf? Uh, golf. Golf. Pineapple pizza or candy corn? Pineapple pizza. Oh, God. Got to answer. Pineapple pizza. (laughs) (laughs) Live music or DJ? Live music. Live music. Live in space or live underwater? Ooh, live underwater. 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 (laughs) Underwater. Underwater. Fight one horse-sized duck or a thousand duck-sized horses? A thousand duck-sized horses? Are you just going to kick them? Kick them? Like soccer. (laughs) 
<clears throat> I'm going with the one big guy. Yeah, you're just squaring <laughs> up against it. <laughs> Sweet snacks or salty snacks? Salty. Salty. Call, text, or audio notes? Audio notes, love it. Really? Mm-hmm. I'm old school text. Yeah, I'm texting. Reading or writing? Um, writing. Writing for sure. Work remote or work on site? Work on site. Work on site. Rather do laundry or the dishes? Laundry. Dishes. <laughs> Twitter, <laughs> LinkedIn, Instagram, or TikTok? Twitter. LinkedIn. There you go. Wow. For a retail mind, it's oh, you, yeah. that will be your big unlock. Yeah. <laughs> um, dancing or people watching? Dancing. Dancing. Yeah, hell yeah. Cocktails or beers? Cocktails. Cocktails. Feel too hot or too cold? Uh, too cold. Feel too cold. You get one animal to protect you against a horde of zombies. Is it a gorilla or a grizzly bear? Gorilla. Silverback. Wow, I'll trust you with the very gorilla. Confident yeah, I was going to say, I'll go <laughs> with that. That's yeah, more confident than any of my answers. <laughs> give up bread or give up cheese for life? Uh, give up bread. Oh my gosh. Give up. Yeah, give up bread. Air guitar or air drums? Air guitar. Air guitar. Board games or video games? Uh, video games. Board games. Okay, $50 on red or black? Red. Black. <laughs> <laughs> I'd love to do a post analysis of like what people's Venn diagrams yeah. look like against all of the guests. Just like a compilation. <clears throat> Start early or leave late? Start early. Start early. Fiction or nonfiction? Nonfiction. Nonfiction. Where are you traveling next, or where would you like to travel next, Europe or Asia? Asia. I am traveling to Europe, and then I'm traveling to Asia. There you go. <laughs> there you go. Uh, playlist or podcasts? Playlist. Podcasts. Pancakes or waffles? Pancakes. Pancakes. Netflix or YouTube? YouTube. Netflix. Telepathy or teleportation? Teleportation. Teleportation. Trucks or billboards? Ooh, trucks. Trucks, obviously. <laughs> you have to. It's a, it's a, it's a moving billboard. <laughs> there you go. Um, good news or bad news first? Um, bad news first. Bad news first. All right, well, the bad news is we've come to the end oh, of our show. It's so, good news. Um, final stop on the journey with the rap. Guys, thank you so much for joining me. This was this is honestly a, a sick discussion. Um, I've learned so much personally. And um, I wanted to wrap by giving you guys an opportunity to just tell the audience where they can learn more about you, where they can go find your brands, things like that. So, Andrew, why don't we start with you? So you can find my brand, noonbrew.co, and uh, I am very active on all the emails, so sign up to the email list, and you'll see me. Nice. Uh, we're available at drinksanzo, drinksanzo.com, also on Amazon, but actually today, big ones that we're plugging, um, you know, the brand is sold nationwide at every Whole Foods in the country. And I guess by the time this comes out, we'll be public with it. Uh, we are also selling now in every Vaughn, Safeway, and hey. Pavilions in the state of California and Hawaii. All um, right. Well, uh, there's some Whole Foods nearby. Why don't we go uh, check out check out Whole Foods? I love it. Let's, Let's do, do it. it.